This is Planetary Radio. Hello again, everyone. I'm Matt Kaplan. If E.T. phoned home, could we eavesdrop on the conversation? It's just possible that we already have. Of course, we're talking about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. This week, Dan Wertheimer of SETI at Home will have the unprecedented opportunity to revisit some of the most promising possible sources of radio signals from beyond our solar system. He talked with us just before beginning his trip to Puerto Rico and the great Arecibo dish. Emily Latwala will answer a listener's question about just how far out into the universe we can hear and how far we can be heard. And later, Bruce Betts will dish up another installment of What's Up, including, yes, another trivia contest. By the way, don't forget our special guest on next week's show, Sir Arthur C. Clarke. Now, from somewhat less than a light year away, here's Emily's message. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, Would a civilization two million light years away be able to detect us? After all, they would see Earth as it was two million years ago before we were here. And isn't it also possible that by scanning too far, we could detect a civilization that is no longer there? We gave this question to the Planetary Society's SETI coordinator, Tom McDonough. It's quite true that a civilization two million light years away would not be able to detect our civilization. Two million years ago was before the pyramids, before agriculture, even before Homo sapiens. In fact, human-produced signals can only be detected within a distance of around 100 light years, the span of time that we have been producing radio and television signals. The Earth is not easy to detect yet. How about those other civilizations? Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out. Dan Wertheimer, project scientist, chief project scientist for the SETI at Home Project. Are you uh, getting on a plane tomorrow? That's right. We're going to the world's largest radio telescope to hunt for ET tomorrow. <laughs> and, of course, uh, I suspect uh, all of our listeners and certainly all of us at the Society wish you the best of luck. This trip has uh, been a long time coming, hasn't it? Well, this is the culmination of four years of, of work uh, by actually four million people around the world in 226 countries have been helping us analyze the data from the Arecibo Radio Telescope. And uh, combined, they make the largest supercomputer on the planet. So this is a huge amount of computing that's been done, a data analysis, and we're now we're uh, following up on that, looking at the very best signals that we've found over the last four years. You might say that uh, I think you could definitely make the argument that you have more investigation partners than any uh, scientific inquiry probably in history. Yeah, that's going to be a long... When you when you write a scientific paper, you list all your collaborators, <laughs> the co-authors. It would take uh, thousands or perhaps millions of pages to list all the people that have helped us. Well, of course, if you are successful in this effort uh, coming up uh, out of SIBO, uh, it might just be worthwhile listing all those folks because of the significance of that discovery. Tell us about what you're going to do there as you basically take a, a second look. As you know, we're searching for radio signals from, from other civilizations, and the concept is that, that Earthlings are sending off radio and television and radar all the time. In fact, you should be careful what you say on planetary radar <laughs> radio because uh, those signals go out into space through the atmosphere, traveling at the speed of light, and uh, uh, early radio broadcasts have reached a few thousand stars, Isla, Lucy, and Sullivan. 
And so maybe ET has got some kind of technology like radio or radio radar, and that's the kind of signal that we're looking for. And and to do that, you need a huge antenna. And we use the world's largest, the Arecibo Radio Telescope in Puerto Rico. It's a thousand feet across. It holds a billion bowls of cornflakes. <laughs> and we've been collecting data there continuously for the last four years and uh, sending it out to the SETI Home volunteers for analysis. They're running the SETI Home Screensaver program. And they, those volunteers who are running that program, everybody analyzes a different part of the sky, and uh, they've been finding the the strong signals. And we've made a list of the most interesting signals, the ones that repeat, the ones that are near planetary systems that we know about, and those are the ones that we're going to go check on, on next week. That's uh, one of the things that I was most curious about, that you hope to look at the uh, maybe 100 to 200 of these best candidates. Can you talk a little bit more about what helped these make the cut? When uh, a SETI home volunteer analyzes their piece of sky, their work unit that they've been assigned, they send back a strong signal. They go, they go through their data looking for the most interesting things at different frequencies, at pulse periods, they um, go through billions of possible signal types. The, st- the interesting things that they find are sent into our database here in Berkeley, and then we have to cull through that and see, was it really interesting or was it a satellite broadcast? Was it a television broadcast? Did they find a terrestrial signal versus an extraterrestrial signal? The ones that really get our attention, the ones that, that we're the most excited about are the repeaters. Every six months or so, the telescope will go back to the same place in the sky, and uh, if we see the same kind of signal uh, at the same place in the sky, at the same frequency, a second time or even a third time, that's what really gets our attention, these, these, these things that repeat. And, of course, uh, the more they repeat or the stronger the signal is, the least likely it is to be a noise event, a little glitch in the, in the receiver. And uh, so those, those we follow up on. Uh, there are different kinds of signals that we're, that we're interested in. There are the the things called we call Gaussians, that as the telescope approaches a star, the signal gets stronger and stronger, and then as we move away, it gets weaker and weaker. If it traces out that characteristic curve, a bell-shaped, Gaussian-shaped curve, uh, that gets us interested. A, re- a pulse that's repeating, bip, 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 is interesting. A, a signal that's drifting in frequency, instead of just staying constant like E, but changing in frequency, that kind of thing we, we follow up on. And so these 100 to 200 that you might get to uh, have a second, not just really a look, but a listen to, they all share some portion of those criteria. Uh, That's right. And the the computer has been going through the billions of signals that have been returned to us from the SETI home participants, and it makes the first cut. It decides what's interference. It decides what's strong, what's repeating, um, what's coincident with a star, if it has planets going around it. That gets a good grade. Anyway, the computer scores all this stuff. But in the end, there are a bunch of humans that have to, there are five humans here in Berkeley that make the ultimate decision about what we can look at. The telescope time is very precious. It's $1,000 an hour. And so uh, we look very carefully and we argue amongst ourselves about what we're going to look at. Are you mostly limited by the amount of time that you can have on this instrument, uh, the great dish at uh, at Arecibo, which is, of course, in great demand for uh, many things, many projects that uh, radio astronomers want to do? That's right. It's a precious time. uh, And uh, the way it works is that uh, if you're an astronomer and you want to use that telescope, you'll be lucky to get the world's biggest telescope a day or two a year to to do your research. And uh, we've actually figured out a way... 
normally when we collect the data, we use the telescope year-round, 24 hours a day. We call it commensal SETI or piggyback SETI. We've got our own receiver that, that can collect data independent of what the main astronomer researchers are doing, and we can collect data at the same time. So we've got the world's biggest telescope year-round. The disadvantage with that commensal or piggyback technique is that we don't get to point the telescope, but we don't know where to look anyway normally. That's true. It, well, you, it just is that you're not calling the shots, but uh, to have this opportunity to be on that dish that is so much larger than anything uh, else, nothing really, nothing else really comes close. I guess piggyback is not so bad. Yeah, but this time, next week, we need to point the telescope. We know exactly where to look. We found the 150 things that we want to point the telescope to, and now we need dedicated time. And so you, the way that works is you write a proposal to the National Science Foundation, the, the Arecibo Telescope people. It's, it's reviewed by peers. If they think that it has good, worthy scientific merit, you'll get some time on the telescope. How long will you actually be able to focus on any one source before you need to move on? We'll just spend a couple of minutes at each source uh, because we want to observe so many. But in two minutes, with a with a, a very good receiver, um, it's even better than the one that we normally use. We'll be able to have even better sensitivity than we normally do when we scan the skies when we use this piggyback commensal technique. So even if the signal's weaker than we normally see it, uh, we'll have a, a good chance of, of detecting it again. Now we've got about a minute before we need to take a break, and I want to talk uh, much more after that break about what will happen with all of this new data that you're going to get. But does this mean, uh, after uh, this uh, great observation uh, opportunity, that there's going to be a lot more data for all of us out here with uh, SETI at home on our PCs? Well, this is not going to create a huge amount of data to analyze. Uh, you know, we're only taking data for a day. Uh, we've been collecting data for four years from the Arecibo Telescope. But we have plans to expand the search to look at new frequency bands. We hope if we can raise the money to go to Australia to cover the southern parts of the sky. So we, we hope to collect a lot more data and continue to involve the 4 million volunteers and, and uh, expand the SETI capabilities. Uh, we're talking with Dan Wertheimer, who is the chief scientist for the SETI at Home Project, on uh, virtually on the eve of his departure for Puerto Rico and the Great Dish at Arecibo. We're going to continue this conversation right after this break, and I, I would like, Dan, if we can, to talk about what will happen, what is the contingency plan in case you get a wow signal, and we'll have to talk about what that means as well when Planetary Radio continues in just a moment. This is Buzz Aldrin. When I walked on the moon, I knew it was just the beginning of humankind's great adventure in the solar system. That's why I'm a member of the Planetary Society, the world's largest space interest group. The Planetary Society is helping to explore Mars. We're tracking near-Earth asteroids and comets. We sponsor the search for life on other worlds, and we're building the first-ever solar sail. You can learn about these adventures and exciting new discoveries from space exploration in the Planetary Report. The Planetary Report is the Society's full-color magazine. It's just one of many member benefits. You can learn more by calling 1-877-PLANETS. That's toll-free, 1-877-752-6387. And you can catch up on space exploration news and developments at our exciting and informative website, planetarysociety.org. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. 
Dan Wertheimer is off to Puerto Rico tomorrow in search of E.T., not in Puerto Rico, of course, but up in the stars, where he will have a full day to point the great dish at Arecibo pretty much wherever they, wherever he wants as chief scientist of the SETI at Home Project, and he knows pretty much where he wants to point it. Dan, once again, thanks for joining us on Planetary Radio. Pleased to be with you. Let's follow up a little bit on what happens if you find something, re-examining one of these uh, sources that you've looked at previously, and it's you start to think, my goodness, it looks like somebody's out there. First of all, would it just be noted, as was the famous wow signal some years back, just uh, somebody making a little note on a, a plot, on a piece of paper? What would probably happen? And would you know, as you're sitting there next to the dish, if you had something that was a really strong candidate? We are going to be analyzing the data at the telescope uh, in near real time. We're going to be checking it out as we go along, uh, watching the screens. The computers will alert us to strong signals at different frequencies. If we find something that's really interesting, we'll stop what we're doing. We won't go on to the next candidate radio signal. We'll reexamine it. We'll move the telescope on to the source. We'll move it away to see if it goes away, back and forth. If it's really exciting, uh, we will call up another observatory, another telescope, to ask if they can see the signal, too. Uh, we need some independent confirmation here because it might be a bug in our software, a graduate student trying to play a prank on us. So you want to get an independent group, different people, different telescope, uh, different instrumentation to see if they can see this thing as well. And if you have two different telescopes widely separated in different countries, you can kind of triangulate on it. You can measure the distance and make sure it's not something in our own solar system, not an interstellar probe or a satellite or something like that. And then we'll know that it's really interesting. And once we have independent confirmation, then we can make an announcement to all the world. And you know, all that information will be shared, the coordinates, the frequencies, the everything we know about the signal. And I imagine a lot of people start looking at it, different telescopes in different places. And let's make it real clear that it's not like uh, the CIA has got a representative sitting next to you uh, at the dish uh, ready to swoop in and uh, place a top secret on any real results. Uh, no, this is a project for all of humanity, the whole Earth. It's international. The, the, the data is, uh, is uh, sent out around the world. And, and uh, well, this is not government-funded uh, research. The government cut off the funds for SETI 10 years ago. This is largely funded by the Planetary Society, who uh, got the whole project, the SETI Home Project, uh, started in the early days. And uh, the Planetary Society is uh, behind this, but it's, it's uh, for all mankind. Before we move on, we better explain to the probably few people in our audience who've not heard of it what that uh, wow signal was. There have been occasionally strong signals that SETI uh, researchers have found with their in their research, and one of the more famous ones was found a long time ago in the early days of uh, SETI at Ohio State University. They had a big telescope. It, it was a very strong signal. It, it looked just like the kind of signal that you'd expect from ET. Had, had the right characteristics, and, uh, and the reason it's called the wow signal is when uh, the researchers uh, saw this thing, uh, the, a guy wrote wow with an exclamation mark on, on the data, and uh, since then it's been followed up on by many, many people staring at it by all kinds of telescopes with much more sensitivity than they had in the old days, and nobody's ever been able to confirm that signal. It's never been seen again. I think it's actually the least likely place for Hmm. to be lurking because it's been followed up on so many times and nobody's seen it. Almost surely it was a, some a radio interference. 
But occasionally you do find these things. There's a big problem with radio interference. The, the radio skies are getting more and more polluted by uh, humans setting up transmitters. Uh, some bands are almost impossible to work in that we'll never be able to search for ET unless we go off into space and where we can be shielded from all of the terrestrial activities. It's a, a terribly unscientific question to ask you, but um, you must daydream or dream about uh, being the first to find that signal coming from in, uh, an intelligence beyond our solar system. Of course, it'd be a tremendous discovery. It'd be the discovery of the millennium. It's, people have been thinking about this question, are we alone? Is anybody out there for thousands of years? And it'd be great to be the, the group that finds it. But actually, I'm not optimistic about what's going to happen next week. I don't, I don't think our chances are very high, um, even though I, you know, it is the culmination of four years of work, and I'm very proud of uh, the world's largest supercomputer, all the volunteers that have helped us, and the most sensitive, comprehensive search that we've been able to do. But I, I don't think it's going to happen next week. I think uh, I'm optimistic in the long run. I think Earthlings are a fairly primitive um, society right now. We're just getting in the game. We've only had radio 100 years. We can't do the thorough, comprehensive searches, looking at all possible frequency bands at all. And it would be easy to miss the radio signals uh, right now. But the reason I'm optimistic in the long run is because the technology is, is changing so fast, du doubling every year. We used, to listen to a, we used to listen to 100 channels. Now we listen to more than 100 million channels. So I, even though I think right now we're just learning how to do this, I think uh, it will probably happen in our lifetimes. And we had a conversation on the show just a couple of weeks ago about uh, SETI branching out in other directions to other bandwidths, including optical SETI, and so the, the search continues. You guys at SETI at home, uh, whatever happens with the, the core of this, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, you have much more to be proud of than that search, and that is your pioneering, uh, really, creation of this distributed computing model, this uh, world's largest supercomputer that relies on millions of personal computers in homes and offices across the world. And this model is one we talked about with your colleague, David Anderson, back in uh, December. He is, of course, a, SETI, a director of the SETI at Home Project. And I guess now, as other research groups have discovered how powerful a technique this can be, you guys are leading an effort to uh, sort of standardize how these projects can do this kind of uh, distributed processing? Uh, that's right. We are trying to make it easy for other scientists to use distributed computing to do their research. Uh, instead of doing SETI, people are now uh, doing research looking for drugs, they're analyzing proteins, uh, and there are a lot of people that would like to harness these volunteers around the world to do big supercomputing projects. Normally it's very expensive to get computer time if you want to, uh, if you need really a lot of computing time. And SETI at Home is actually the biggest supercomputer on the planet. If you add up all the volunteers, they donate a thousand years of computing time every day. They've donated a million years of computing time so far. It's bigger than any supercomputer on the planet, even if you add up all the supercomputers, the big supercomputers around this world. So for other researchers to do this kind of project, for whatever kind of research that they want to do, whether it be SETI or something in astronomy, chemistry, biology, um, there's a global warming climate modeling project at Oxford. We're trying to make an infrastructure to make it easy so you don't have to be a computer science expert in distributed computing like David Anderson. Uh, to make it easy for them to do that. And we're building an infrastructure. It's open source, like a free source code that anybody can download and trying to make it easy for them to run their own distributed computing projects. 
Dan, we've only got about a minute left. Um, last question to you. Uh, what's it like there at Arecibo? I mean, where do you stay? Is it hard to get to? Do you, do you need a Jeep, or uh, is there a, a freeway uh, going by a quarter of a mile away? It's about a two-hour drive from uh, San Juan, the capital. It's uh, in the mountains. It's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. It's rainforest kind of country, uh, very tropical. Uh, you hear at night very loud Koki frogs chirping away. It's it's really beautiful. It's a wonderful place, a very exciting place to be, a lot of interesting people around there. And so it's, uh, I'm really looking forward to being there and hoping we can find E.T. Well, we will wish you a wonderful trip and even more so uh, great success in this uh, reexamination of these uh, possible uh, places where who knows, maybe somebody may be uh, looking back at us and trying to communicate. We've been talking with Dan Wertheimer, the uh, chief project scientist for the SETI at Home Project. And anyone who wants to learn more about SETI at Home, including how they can participate, I suppose they can visit the uh, Planetary Society website, right, Dan? Uh, yeah, if you want to help us analyze the signals from the, from the telescope, if you want to help us hunt for ET or just learn about the project, uh, the website to go is planetary.org. Dan, thanks very much. Bon voyage and, and happy hunting. Thank you. Planetary Radio will continue in just a minute. I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. If the SETI project detects a civilization two million light years away, that civilization may well have died out during the time it took for its signals to reach us. Still, even if we detect a dying or dead civilization, it could have a lot to tell us. Maybe we could even learn from its mistakes. Actually, though, even if such a civilization once existed, we're not likely to detect it. Most SETI searches focus on our own galaxy, examining radio and optical sources that are typically thousands, not millions, of light years away. Recent efforts to discover extrasolar planets seem to indicate that planets are common around stars in our neighborhood, so there are probably many thousands of planets within less than a thousand light years. If we pick up a civilization's transmissions within this distance, there is hope that the civilization may still be flourishing. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org and you may hear it answered by a leading space scientist or expert. Be sure to provide your name and how to pronounce it and tell us where you're from. And now, here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts is here to tell us what's up and lots of other great stuff. He's even got a new trivia contest question for us. Bruce, welcome back. Thank you very much. I'm once again giddy to be here. And on the telephone with uh, limited fidelity, but uh, we'll be back live or uh, in person with you next week. Yes, we will, and it will be much more Fidel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Speaking of Fidel, no, I'm sorry, that would be a political show. Go ahead. How are we uh, doing? Cuban dictators walk into a bar. <laughs> No, that's not this show. No, Sorry. that's, that's okay, two weeks. Okay, let's go to what's up in the sky. Stay tuned for the April 1st show, everybody. You won't be disappointed. Go ahead, Bruce. What is up in the sky? Planets and stars. Can't you remember a thing, Matt? <laughs> oh, shoot. I keep forgetting whenever it's cloudy. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, we've got, we've got Jupiter looking extremely bright in the evening and Venus extremely bright in the early morning. Those are your two primary planet targets this week. Jupiter looking overhead in, in the mid-evening somewhere around, say, 8 p.m., and look the brightest object up there at that time. 
And uh, if you want to compare it to the brightest star in the sky, look towards the south and should be able to see lower down Sirius, the brightest star in the sky. And in the early morning, before dawn and into dawn, you can see Venus in the east-southeast. Something else to look for, which because this show does get an international audience, we can't tell you right where to look, but we can point you places, is to look for satellites, spacecraft. A lot of people don't realize that you actually can see things, uh, particularly the big ones like International Space Station. You look up at the right time in the right direction, it's quite obvious and looks like a bright star going across the sky. You can also see quite easily some of the other large satellites, such as Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, and the trick, of course, is where do you look and when? And there are various sites, for example, for International Space Station. You can some places uh, in the world listed on uh, NASA's spaceflight website, so you can get to that through www.nasa.gov. You can also go to another site, which you can actually see all sorts of uh, spacecraft of where they will be, depending on where you live, at www.heavensabove, and there's a dash between the two words, .com. Another fun thing you might try is looking that up and figure out when, when there's a good time to see something in your neighborhood, and usually with Space Station, you can see it pretty well fairly frequently for most of the world's population. What do you think of that, Matt? I love it. Let's give that last URL once again quickly. Uh, it was heavens-above.com? Yes. Okay, great. All right, what else do you have for us this week? Uh, this week in space history, March 18, 1965, Alexei Leonov made the first ever spacewalk for 10 minutes aboard Voskhod 2. Those pesky Soviets, they beat us again. That that all ended a few years later, of course, with uh, Apollo 11. But it was a little while later when the first American made it, right? Uh, right. Uh, Ed White on Gemini 4 in early June of 1965, two or three months later. We marking any other anniversaries? Uh, we are. Speaking of Gemini, March 16, 1966, Gemini 8 was launched. This mission included the first docking of two orbiting spacecraft. A key uh, part of uh, getting to the moon and uh, continuing to be a very important part of uh, human space travel. What do we do now? Do we move on to uh, the trivia question, or, or I guess uh, yes, we want to give the winner? We've got random space facts. How could I forget, especially huh. with that echo? Exactly. The atmospheric pressure you would experience on the surface of Venus is approximately equal to the pressure you would experience 3,000 feet down in the Earth's ocean about a one, one kilometer down. In other words, about 90 times the pressure at the Earth's surface. Wow. And that's on a planet that is roughly the same size as Earth. Exactly. Whew. Jeez. Nasty it's place. It's there, too, but we'll come back to that in some other random space fact. Yeah. Okay. Now, now can I, can I give the trivia uh, contest winner? First, let's review the trivia contest question, if that's okay. Oh, I can hardly wait, because this is a guy who's been waiting two months to win. <laughs> All right. Well, he's going to have to wait another few seconds. What is the nickname of the relatively large rock a few meters from the Viking Lander 1 spacecraft? And the answer would be Big Joe. And our winner, here it is. Bill, you finally made it. (laughs) Your ship has come in. Bill Magnumson. It doesn't look like uh, you'd say it that way, but he did it for us phonetically. Bill Magnumson, Jr., is our winner for this week. He hails from Malden, Massachusetts. And, Bill, we're going to uh, send you one of those Carl Sagan Memorial Station T-shirts. Congratulations. Congratulations to Bill. And for this uh, upcoming week, actually, one quick note about Big Joe. It, it does appear in a lot of the, the foreground of a lot of the Viking Lander one shots, and it was also one of those things that, that kind of uh, made people's hearts have palpitations after the landing when they looked and saw Big Joe because it was big enough at about two meters in 
diameter that if the lander had had landed on it, it would have flipped over. Mm, well, so, phew. Yeah. <laughs> now, moving on to this week's contest, based on volume, how many Earths would fit inside Jupiter? Please round off to the nearest 100. How many Earths would fit inside Jupiter based on volume to the nearest 100? And we, we will tell you it's more than two. Uh, it is at least two, maybe six. <laughs> but I'm thinking probably more. We're being somewhat facetious, of course. Uh, how will they contact us, Bruce? They will go to planetary.org and follow the links to Planetary Radio where they will be informed of how to enter. I want to go back to uh, last week's show for one brief moment. Uh, correction, I, I was stumped by you and was making up words on the spot because I couldn't remember the right words. It is, of course, ellipsoid, not elliptoid. So you can stop calling and writing now. Thank you very much. We were especially getting nasty notes from the elliptoids who uh, live on a star about 24 light years away. It's true. It's true, which, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, we, we have those, those SETI projects that pull those things in. So anyway, we apologize to the elliptoids and are happy for the, the ellipsoid people. <laughs> Bruce, we're out of time. Thank goodness. <laughs> We'll talk to you again next week. All right. Remember, look up in the sky and get happy. <laughs> Bruce Betts is the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. Thank you. Good night. You really won't want to miss next week's show. Why? Because we'll be talking with Arthur C. Clarke. It's not necessary to say anything else, is it? Till then, why not drop us a line at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And catch up on our past shows at planetary.org. The executive producer of Planetary Radio is Lou Friedman. Charlene Anderson, Monica Lopez, and Jennifer Vaughn provide invaluable assistance. Me, I'm Matt Kaplan. Have a great week.